What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Chrissy Saunders, CEO and co-founder at CS2. Chrissy started her career at Marketo when the company was only four years old, and she was quickly promoted to marketing ops manager, where she led weekly training of internal users, as well as lead management and technical execution for enterprise clients. She then moved over to Jive Software as global marketing operations manager, and later Agari as a senior demand gen manager. She co-founded WalkZ, an app that connected shelter dogs with dog lovers who needed a walking buddy, and she also co founded CS2 with her husband, Charlie, a MarTech agency that powers efficient and predictable revenue, for uh, which has grown to 15 members and has served some of the coolest brands, including Gong, Sendozo, Coursera, and Salesloft. She also has uh, a way to find time to be a podcast co-host, a Women in Revenue co-founder, a partner at MKT1, and an advisor for Sinkari and Chili Piper. Chrissy, thanks so much for your time today. Pumped to chat. Yeah, I'm excited. I've always like seen that some of the the promos and parts of the interviews for this, so I'm excited to be on. And I I love that I get turned into an AI figure as well with it. So I'm stoked. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you uh, giving me some some feedback on that. <laughs> Uh, it's it's always a fun part of the the process. Started off with just like, yeah, this is the cover art, and like this is happening. To now just being like, all right, like I'm using guests' real faces here. Like I, I need to give them <laughs> a bit of a taste before I, I put this out in the wild. There, but yeah, appreciate you uh, hanging in there. I I'm also a big <laughs> fan of your your podcast. Longtime listener, uh, love the video angle and like the workflow walkthroughs, uh, like the share your screen videos that you and Charlie do. Uh, I've picked up a lot myself when I was a Marketo user back in the day, but I know you guys do some, some HubSpot stuff as well. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Knack. Launching an email or landing page in your marketing automation platform shouldn't feel like assembling an airplane mid-flight with no instructions, but too often, that's exactly how it feels. Knack is like an instruction set for campaign creation, from establishing brand guardrails and streamlining your approval process to Knack's no-code drag-and-drop editor to help you build emails and landing pages. No more having to stop midway through your campaign to fix something simple. Knack lets you work with your entire team in real time and stops you having to fix things mid-flight. Check them out at knack.com, that's K-N-A-K, and tell them we sent you. But I want to start there. Like, not everyone would jump at the opportunity of going into business with their spouse, but you and Charlie have had a really successful run at it with uh, CS2. And I want to know how you manage the differences in opinion uh, or like business strategies within the agency. And what advice do you have for couples out there that are maybe both in marketing or, or in marketing ops that are potentially pondering this decision? Yeah, no, this question came up um, actually on another podcast I was on. Um, and I, th I think the thing, the benefit for Charlie and I is we um, we met at work, which I, I know is a bit tricky to do nowadays. But, you know, <laughs> oh, almost 10 years ago, uh, he worked a, a more of like a, a global. We both had global roles. So he he worked in the um, EMEA office. I was in Palo Alto. And then I was 
supporting the global marketing team and operations. So um, I quickly needed someone to be kind of my counterpart there just because of the time difference. And I, he was more tied to demand gen, but I was like, oh, he gets it. He gets operations. I'm just going to get him to like do all the things there if when <laughs> he can and be self-sufficient without having to wait for me to like work on projects for them or, or, you know, support them. So, um, and he, he did. And so we worked on projects together and then I don't know, you just, I, I think we ended up figuring out like, not only do we work really well with each other, but, um, that was a sign that we just, you know, had chemistry there. And so, yeah, we ended up getting married and, um, we lived apart for a year, uh, just to get our visa after we got married. Um, and so it was a good natural, um, change where I was doing a lot at my in-house role. I think I was a senior manager back then, but honestly, I was doing <laughs> heading marketing, demand generation, rev ops, leading an SDR team. I was like doing <laughs> a, a lot. Um, and I wanted to kind of take back more control and maybe do something, um, and then with with Charlie and do something ourselves. And so I reached out to our network about doing consulting. Um, and I got really good uh, feedback. Like out of 10 people I reached out to, I had like five clients from day one. So it was great. And we had enough from there. Um, at the time, marketing ops was still not looked at or operations in general, because we were doing marketing ops, but it's always been a mix of marketing ops and sales operations, which at the time revenue ops wasn't really a thing, or if it was, it was kind of still what happens today where it just looks at like a glorified, like kind of sales ops. But mm -hmm. anyway, um, we, that's why our, our domain, which kills us all the time, but it's a CSU marketing. Cause we were doing more than just operations. We were kind of giving campaign ideas, writing emails, working on websites, all this kind of stuff. But we, we changed that and we, we went to a more focus on our bread and brother, butter, which is more revenue operations. Um, but yeah, so I think having that background of working with each other made it really easy to then start working with each other again, but owning mm -hmm. kind of the business. And I think we were very aligned on the goals of the business. And we just naturally, we do this in our personal life too, but kind of assess our um, strengths between us. And then we'll assign out parts of the business to based on our strengths. And we're always in alignment. We meet like every morning, just always go through our priorities, which I think not a lot of businesses, like business leaders get to do that. They're usually in different places or um, different meetings or to have different groups, but we make a purpose to always connect. And the the downfall is like some nights, you know, when you're meant to be chilling with your partner <laughs> and talking about fun things, we're just ruminating over the business and it can creep into your life but um yeah we we just i think also we like storming uh so it's not really like fighting we never turn anything into like a fight but if we have differences we'll storm on it and then usually like that excites us and we'll come up with a really good idea so you know storming norming all that the mckinsey framework i feel mm -hmm. like we do a lot of that at cs2 but especially with charlie and myself so 
Awesome. It sounds like a, a really fun dynamic. I was laughing because uh, we, we interviewed Paul Wilson on the show a couple weeks ago, and his wife, Ginger, is also in, in marketing ops. Uh, and he was joking that in their living room, they have like three whiteboards and they often just like storm together. They'll pause TV and just like start whiteboarding stuff. So I, I was going to joke jokingly ask you, are there whiteboards in the living room? <laughs> No, but we honestly, I think there was at one point, like we had a condo <laughs> and we had this big whiteboard when we first started CS2 and it was just like in our house and we would just whiteboard things together. And we still kind of do that today. But um, yeah, we don't, we don't have it in the living room, luckily. Um, but I could see how that would be very useful. But we do spend a lot of conversations and nights in our living room, you know discussing things, strategizing, talking about the team and our messaging, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. So very cool. One thing you've written uh, about that I found super interesting was that like one thing that worries you a little bit peering into the future of, of MarTech roles is that hiring managers are struggling to find marketing ops pros who have gone beyond the tactical and tech focused mm -hmm. manager to this like strategic business minded director or, or leader. What advice do you have for marketing ops folks that are listening to avoid potentially stalling their careers and, and leveling up to like potentially a, a strat ops role? Yeah, I think this is an interesting question because I think that Uniquely um, to maybe say someone who's on a CMO path where maybe you can just focus more on the strategy. I think when the the best success for someone to in an operations role is to still be somewhat aligned to the technical things that need to be done and the tactics, but it's just figuring out how to pair that or what what needs to be evolved, what approaches and strategies need to change with the times. Um, and maybe you don't need to have that know the ins and outs of everything. You know, a leader, you don't have to be, you know, creating flows in Salesforce, but also, you know, setting up nurtures, but then also creating your roadmap. Like, it, I think, um, but knowing what's possible, knowing what needs to be done, who should be doing it, that's what makes someone strategic in operations. And and then prioritizing the um the things that need to be done. And a lot of the time people skip out on foundation because they're so just locked into like these firefighting modes and fixing things. And they're not clearly communicating to the business, hey, we need to actually set the operational foundation and processes and things like that in order to ensure that we don't aren't stuck in this, you know, tactical firefighting mode. And so um, but I think for the people that are like, oh yeah, one day I'm just going to be like, you know, managing people and just coming up with a strategy. I don't know if that's really that successful because I think those people still need to have a leader who gets like kind of the ins and outs. Like you don't have to actually know like the hands on keyboards ins and outs, but really understanding what is possible, what tech is the right thing to use, why, or at least having someone educate them on that effectively. Um, but uh, so I think, but I think my tips usually for people to um, be more strategic and less just tactical, I think is really to focus on kind of um, the business goals and priorities and how you can, and, and the key metrics that they care about, especially the revenue team, which is usually, you know, pipeline revenue. Um, but there could be other like key 
metrics um, or goals of the revenue team beyond that, and then creating a roadmap of your projects to help support that. Um, and knowing that you can leave buffer in your roadmap for things that come up, it always does in operations, right? But um, making sure that your teams are executing on a long-term roadmap on the things that really make sense and matter um, will be key. And then also not shying away from data and analysis and insights because that is so crucial to the business, um, to operational efficiency, and to like the CMO, the CRO, even the CEO, um, if there are people within the organization really figuring out how to um, best measure it and provide those insights, not just the data, oh, here's a dashboard now, like try to figure out, okay, how can you enable them or actually do the analysis and start those exploratory um, moments, which is what a dashboard provides, and then how you could dive deeper and then provide um, actions to the business to improve things. Yeah, great advice. There's there's so many insights to to pull out of there. I, I think that the the metrics advice, um, this idea of like focusing on a roadmap and and having a buffer in there, because yeah, there's there's always ad hoc stuff that <laughs> it creeps in w- without like uh, planning about it ahead of time. Um, but one of the first things you said, like how to be strategic in ops, is this idea of knowing the art of the possible. And I feel like in Martech that 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 definition is always changing. Like it's constantly evolving mm-hmm. with, with new tech and, and something that's been, uh, I guess like a, a trend in, in 2023 and, and going into 2024 now is this idea of composability with AI and like these reverse CTL tools coming out with, uh, unbundling the CDP option. Like I, I went down this whole rabbit hole last year on the podcast about the composable CDP architecture. Uh, I, I went down the actual practical elements of it at my current startup with, with our data team but there's there's also like the marketing automation component to that as well um you know marketing automation platforms are much older than than cdps so i think the idea of unbundling them is a bit harder to grasp uh partly because like once you're embedded in one of those platforms it's quite hard to to migrate out of that or it's mm-hmm. it's a big project to to get out of it you've invested a ton already in there and i know you guys on the podcast last year dove into this topic a little bit uh, and you said that you don't think that we're there yet. And I agree for marketing uh, automation. What's, what's your main argument there for, uh, for like why you shouldn't unbundle the marketing automation platform today? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's too many issues with how like things really got done for, for, uh, for marketers, marketing ops, revenue ops, like the, it's usually understaffed. Um, there's usually a ton to do and there's usually turnover. Um, and there's an element where people need to be trained on a tool and also sometimes have some, some version of like self-service. So I think when you try and just rip out a kind of, um, one size fits all solution, um, which a market automation platform can do so much, right? And that's beneficial because it, you can, but also there's a lot of um, concessions that you make then on certain things like the sync, how it works or how data flows into your you know system, all the things that you kind of talked about. And then there's probably a lot of parts of the tool that people aren't using. So why am I paying for it? And mm-hmm. uh, there's some element of that. Um, but the thing that really worries me is just more of like the management and the upkeep. And there's already a ton of tech debt in market automation platforms and CRMs. 
And so I worry when you then introduce to try and do more of these point solutions, you're going to have a lot of that. And then on top of it, there's turnover usually. So you might be hard. It might be harder also then to hire someone who wants to take that on. And so I think that it, um, we're not there because of that. Um, do I think that it's a never happening kind of thing? No, I think there is benefit though, to having a tool that like you could do a lot with, and you have one contract to manage one tool to be an expert on. Cause there's just so many, so many things, um, from a MarTech and sales tech that can come up that you need to like manage. And so trying to decouple that can be hard. I think for SMBs though, it could be really interesting, at least to start, especially when you're trying to maybe show to be a bit more profitable earlier. So maybe you can get like better investments, evaluation, which is hard to come by now. So that could be a good chance to do it. And then see, because you can make concessions too. Like you could just be like, okay, well, we're just going to have this for this and this for this. And then maybe we'll use like a Zapier or something to connect things. And that could be okay. Because then you have like a, um, maybe you can create some documentation around it from the start. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think there's too many kind of, um, I think historical issues, especially in B2B, um, with the operations function that would make it very tricky to do now. And also I feel like some, I would rather just see just more advancements, um, or people really trying to figure out, okay, what market automation platform really is useful for us and what are we going to get the most out of instead of like a marketing ops person coming in and being like, I prefer this, let's mm -hmm. get this or, you know, something like that. Um, and I think that would be more useful because there's different flavors of, um, that coming out, whether it's one more focus on, um, kind of transactions and another one, maybe more focused on ABM. Um, or maybe a, you know, HubSpot, which is, caters to a lot now. And we've actually just had a podcast um, launched this week, but is even starting to be more, not only an SMB tool, but an enterprise grade solution. Mm -hmm. And so if the companies like them are able to advance and they're even putting AI into their product, like, um, but yeah, there's like, you know, Inflection.io, Iterable, uh, Clavio, like really depending on your use case, like really deciding, okay, what platform is good for that instead of maybe trying to decouple and <laughs> create this uh, composable solution um, that maybe it would be really hard to upkeep or transfer over to someone. Yeah, a composable spaghetti mess of, of tools <laughs> just to be able to say that you're you're using something that, that you like and you have a good experience with. But yeah, you bring up a lot of good points there. I think the the tech debt and just the troubleshooting when something goes wrong, mm -hmm. like there's so many different end solutions to to double check and QA and see where where the issue is coming from. Um, I agree with you. I want to play just for fun, uh, devil's advocate on on one argument there to yeah. to kind of like bring up the the other side of the coin. So like my my biggest argument opening myself up to this idea of like a a composable marketing automation stack is that legacy platforms, especially like the the older ones, uh, mm -hmm. are super slow to innovate. You said like HubSpot just added AI features. Like they're they're a bit more of like the exception to that rule, I guess. But like like I don't want to like 
crap on Marketo, but like Marketo's UI for a second, right? Like yeah. I'm biased because I'm I'm an iterable customer and a fan and they're they're a sponsor of the show, but like even other newer platforms like iterable, they've already had AI features for quite a bit of time now. When you're stuck in a packaged world, like a big platform world, you're always one new marketing trend away from needing an escape hatch anyway. Mm. So mm -hmm. ignoring the cost argument and like the the troubleshooting argument, which I know we, we shouldn't be there, but like just for a second, that that can all change with like this warehouse native tech approach and transitioning away from copying your your database, right? Like most automation platforms are copying your data warehouse customer data. What's what's maybe holding you back from from moving on from potential legacy platforms in the future? I think the thing maybe holding Hold me back. And I think you make a good argument, to be honest. I think for me too, I it's like maybe as a consultant, I I tend to lean on, okay, I don't live in a I don't usually live too much in a theoretical world. I live very much in a like a proven, like battle tested, like this is what you should do world. But we always do try to be more forward thinking and we'll think about okay, how can we really rethink the what we're doing at CS2? Um, that's a big part of our our ethos because what I what I never want to be is this agency that's stuck doing the same cookie cutter things over and over. We never have been like that. It's a mm -hmm. big part of why we started. Um, the thing that I would even challenge, I think the, the the hardest part, and I agree with you, like some tools are slow to innovate, and so it does open up that opportunity. I think the you have to make the choice of like, even if they're slow to innovate. Like what, what would be like the benefit? I think there needs to be maybe a crossroads decision say like, mm -hmm. Hey, this solution actually is not providing us anymore. And maybe you do go up that route to find like an interim thing. But I would say like having too much complexity, I think like simplification is good. Um, the thing that I worry, the thing that's actually most annoying is like everything has turned SAS and actually Charlie shared a, a podcast um, clip with me the other day. It was the the owner of Basecamp, and he has kind of a, a new um, position on like, okay, well, everything has been turned SaaS, and it's likely a lot of those things shouldn't have been SaaS. They should have just been a product. You know, we went from on-prem and all that kind of stuff, and you just bought a tool mm -hmm. to then every this everything just turned into a subscription. And I think then you look at the cost of that <laughs> and also – you know, it's based on users and you they'll scale it out that way. So if you think of even something as simple as Slack, which a few developers could probably develop something good enough to just, you know, message back and forth. Why does that need to be a subscription that costs millions of dollars to some organizations <laughs> just to get there? You know, so I think that's interesting. I think when you look at it that way, too, when for the companies that haven't been innovating their product, um, because you look at like WordPress or something, like you're paying for a tool, but um, or a product usually. And um, I think of it the same way when I look at the companies. If they're not innovating, I'm like, I should have just paid for this once and then and then used it. Why am I paying <laughs> a subscription for no right. additional like add-ons and stuff like that? So maybe that kind of ekes into like what you're saying of like, okay, how can I maybe get into a position where I have the flexibility to to innovate, especially when I'm not knowing if that company is going to. 
So, but I will say I have to see more in practice. I have to develop more. And I think the problem is there's so many fundamental, really simple, you know, simple things <laughs> that companies still don't have because they're <laughs> stuck in these like complexities yeah. of data and the people around the data and how, you know, just we a big part of what we do is like funnel, funnel management. We have a solution that we build on a custom object for it. Um, just looking at the sales process and how you can get people stick to a process is challenging, let alone, you know, managing um, some tools that maybe uh, like people that you're hiring don't have any experience with. It, it, it will require maybe a more traditional engineering path, I think, that we hire out of for, for operators. And that would be interesting, but it's not typically happening today. Everyone's so self-taught in this role, too. Yeah, great, great points. Uh, I think that's like the resounding advice is if you don't have the ability today to track lifecycle stages or funnel stages, don't <laughs> even think about a composable yeah. architecture for for your MAP. But I like your point about um, CS2 being this like forward thinking agency. I know you guys like pivoted the name of the podcast uh, for our GA. And I know you posted about how CS2 dropped the what we do on the site and started focusing on what you deliver for clients. And it mm -hmm. led you to introducing this idea of the revenue growth architecture that you guys introduced. And one of the core pieces of the RGA is the funnel itself that you just talked about. And I feel like the funnel, you know, not necessarily new, but like a lot of people have tried to like take a spin at like reviving it uh, or reinventing it into like a cycle or a flywheel. Why Why is the funnel core for you guys in, in the RGA model? Yeah. And I will say that when we think about things and we say funnel, but we'll also kind of think of it as like a, a life cycle. So, but when we think about a funnel, the way that we track, uh, and we have a tool, like I said, that is tracks on a custom object in, in Salesforce for our clients, if they're using it, um, where you can track your, um, your journeys basically from sales ready, which a lot of people call MQL. We prefer sales ready, um, all the way to, to one basically. And the benefit of doing that is like, you can have repeat journeys. And so a lot of these like methods before where you're just tracking like certain dates or doing a one-time thing, overriding data, um, doesn't really take into account of like, hey, there are repeat journeys. Someone can go back into nurture and, and you know, re. So that's another like funnel. So I would say like, it's kind of semantics. You kind of follow the, what makes sense to prospects. And we're like, okay, prospects are using funnel when they talk about it. So we're going to say that too. But there's a lot that um, then goes underneath that is like, the critical foundation. So what we what we found is like we would be working on these projects and then all the same things kind of come up. Okay, we need to set up um, criteria for who becomes sales ready. It's, it's traditionally you call that lead scoring um, and prioritization. Um, hand raisers, how do you identify those people? Um, and um, there's just kind of like the core like foundational processes that like lead sourcing. Are you tracking lead source? Are you doing it the right way? You're looking at the channel and the offer and so forth. And how can we get that data onto the lifecycle record? So you know like what the tipping point was. Um, but anyway, so I think because it's so key, like the the funnel will actually, sh it's a 
It's the one area where you're getting insight into your sales process and you're actually defining the sales process around it because you're, you're studying, okay, what are our stages of our sales process basically and marketing process and how are we going to track that? And let's get aligned on what the definition is. There's so many times we come to organizations like, when do you create an opportunity? Oh, well, sometimes it's like, oh, when we have a meeting or <laughs> someone's like, oh, just because just cause, you know, <laughs> like just when, like they, they just decide to, and you just can't get any insight into bottlenecks that could be happening or true, like how things are flowing through to opportunity and and close one. And so it's just such a fundamental metric that companies need. It's not the only metric, but I think, but at the same time, it aligns the marketing and sales teams together on what that sales process looks like. Um, and handoffs look like and and what the prospect will go through. And not even just a prospect. You can have a funnel for a customer and you can track that too. So that but that's why we think it's like so fundamental and foundational. And it's actually shocking how many people don't really track things properly. So really what they only end up doing is tracking, say, MQLs or sales ready leads. Um, and then what sources do they come from? And usually they're looking at maybe even just the first touched source, but uh, which is not really what we suggest, but, um, and then it becomes like, okay, marketing, how do you want to be measured? Oh, we'll just get measured by MQLs, you know, mm -hmm. volume, because that's the only thing we feel comfortable reporting on. <laughs> um, but really, if you're able to track your funnel all the way back to pipeline and revenue, well, then your goals can be different. Okay. And you're able to show what the tipping point source is. So at least if you're, I don't like doing the whole like marketing versus sales versus whatever, but a lot of companies still kind of give departmental goals on that. So at least if you're able to say like, okay, what touch points actually like started that to become sales ready? Um, of course, there's a lot of other things that could be make the person become sales ready, but you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So we're just trying to put a model around something to make it useful for the team to get those insights and funnels are a really good one for that. Yeah, definitely table stakes and in B2B and, and B2C as well. I, I've had yeah. a chance to play in, uh, on both sides of the, the business model there. And you're right, like in some companies, it, it was a bit more of a slog to to figure out how do we get revenue and top of funnel data all in one spot where we can do that that full funnel reporting this episode is also brought to you by our friends at census census is a data activation platform loved by marketing teams at sonos canvas crocs notion and more as a customer i've experienced the magic of census firsthand their no code audience hub and reverse etl enable me to use our cloud data warehouse to power growth and create highly personalized customer journeys in all of my marketing platforms like iterable and google ads if you like the Humans of MarTech podcast graphics and you want your very own image, we're doing a monthly raffle for a personalized t-shirt designed by us. Enter to win at getcensus.com slash humans. On on the topic of reporting itself, like there's there's one there's one post I wanted to like ask you about. I, I mm -hmm. thought it was incredible because you you called out this idea that like we're over indexing on using or trying to use multi touch attribution data, and we're or a lot of people are completely under indexing on using just the basic revenue funnel or lifecycle data. And there's a ton of gold in your post, but like one thing that I wanted to dive deep on with you is like how, how you think uh, or how the team thinks of funnel reporting. You have like 
three V's that you you called mm -hmm. out the volume, velocity, and and conversion. And I, yeah, I'd just love for you to unpack the practical components of like how do you actually achieve that? Is it usually through like date stamps for each stage, like you kind of talked about, like what led to sales readiness, what led to that first ops? Is it the custom object that you mentioned you do in Salesforce for some clients, or you know building the funnel data tables in the warehouse with like everyone talking about the warehouse being like the central like source of truth or whatever like are you migrating more toward the ladder or yeah just curious your thoughts there yeah so we have migrated more to tracking it on a uh custom object the benefit of having a custom object for it too so majority of our majority of our clients use salesforce crm that might change in the future but then i still would suggest like a single object um, that leads and contacts could be tied to. So you don't have to do this like weird disjointed uh, reporting, which is what a lot of people do. Um, they're like, okay, I'm trying to look at a volume of MQLs or sales ready leads. And you're just date stamping on the lead and contact. Well, those are two separate tables. So you need to do like, okay, show me leads, but don't show me the converted ones. And now show me the contacts that have that. And then show them separately. And so that's why people have been like, okay, maybe we need to use a data warehouse for this um, BI tool to display that data. The benefit of custom object, at least it's all on one records. So you don't have to do these like weird joins and things like that. Um, and uh, so we have a, we, we call it internally project insight, but we have a, um, an unmanaged package that we uh, install for clients and they just, pay for it and they pay for us to implement it. It's not, there are people, there are companies that are paying subscriptions for similar type of tools, but then the benefit is we can customize it to their, um, process. And it's, um, it's really useful. And when we, when we track, we track from sales ready. So we don't do anything pre sales ready. You can get that a little bit through different types of reporting. Um, but really when you start a life cycle, if you re um, you know, become sales ready. You don't want to compare that to like when they were first created, that would look weird. So it's really mm. just good at starting the funnel at sales ready. And then, yeah, we track the, um, the achievements into each stage. Um, and we'll actually track what the, um, life cycle source, source campaign, um, and source detail. Um, so that could be, you know, your events and it was a trade show. And then you have the name of the campaign for the trade show for, um, and then we'll track that as the tipping point. So what was the last thing before they become sales ready? We do have some cases there for timing too, if they happen to get the data like a little bit later, um, retroactively, but, um, and we kind of for sales as well as marketing. So the whole funnel, um, and, um, the benefit of not having like date stamps, although companies can do this, if you're just getting started and you want to just use date stamps to start, totally fine. I think what you need to note is that um, that data could get overwritten. So if someone MQLs twice in a year and you don't have like maybe a, you know, first MQL date and the second MQL date or whatnot, um, you're going to lose that history because that person would have, um, you know, sales ready again or MQL again. So that's why we like the custom object. And then also the nice thing is you can then send that data to like a, a BI tool, and then you can do more advanced displays and of the data, better dashboarding potentially, um, especially around looking at certain campaigns and so forth. So that's one of the, one of the reasons why we like it. Um, and 
Yeah. And it, it just is way better for conversion reporting. So that's one of the things mm. too, is if you're able to track that all in one object, you don't have this weird funkiness of trying to uh, miss out on maybe um, leads who haven't converted or contacts now who started a funnel and having to report on those separately. It's never going to look right or great. So you actually tie everything successfully back to an opportunity. And then we can account for also like multiple life cycles. So when you look at someone, you can see how many life cycles did they have and uh, or funnel journeys is what we call them. But um, so yeah, that's our preferred method. But uh, to your point, you could date stamp and you could then send those as records to like a data warehouse, a BI tool, but just find like the simpler, the better. Like a even when you have a BI tool, there's always going to be users who are like, I just want to see that data in mm -hmm. our CRM. Yeah. And so we always lean on that, especially for those key like core um, metrics. Um, but the biggest thing around it is the sales process, like making sure that you're actually defining what the sales process is. There's enablement around it because we're trying to put a model around things that happen in some ways <laughs> manually sometimes, like when and how a lead gets converted to an opportunity. And um, we account for a lot of that kind of stuff with our clients. And we try to automate as much of the stage changes as possible. So like even if someone moves into like a working stage, you can look at tasks from outreach and things like that, but or whatever tool you're using. But yeah, that's our preferred method. But conversion rates will help you with planning. Your volume obviously helps you with are you achieving like your goals if you have volume goals. We we don't like that, but I think having like kind of sub goals of volume because that helps inform whether you're going to hit like your pipeline revenue numbers if you're using the, the those conversion rates for planning is good. Um, and the velocity, velocity can really tell you like where maybe there's bottlenecks, especially by like a region or mm -hmm. even down to the person, like the the SDR or whoever it's assigned to. If you see that like, you know, the velocity, um, you know, from a MQL on a sales ready, like hand raiser or something, um, is, you know, days, weeks or something, you know, that's something that you want to address. That's why I love like quick wins. If you're looking for quick wins, just like literally dive into your funnel data. And if you have the funnel data, it helps inform so many actions that you can take um, for the business, especially if also you're seeing like what campaigns are driving um, and kills that are flowing down the funnel to opportunity and so forth. Like even without attribution data, you can get some insights into um, at least some of the demand creation campaigns or demand capture in some cases. But yeah, um, attribution is a totally different thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. I feel like m maybe this this could have been its own podcast episode. In of itself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's there's fascinating insights in there. I think around the the conversion rate data whether it lives in the warehouse or the CRM for a lot of marketing teams, like it, it's got to live in the tools that you're using on a daily yes. basis. And for a lot of them, that's, it's the CRM or it's the, like for email conversion rate data or email engagement data, it's going to be in the, the marketing automation platform, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I know you've written a lot about the struggle of tracking email engagements 
and how much that's changed over time with like the Apple mail privacy changes and with like open rates becoming less and less reliable. I've mm -hmm. spent like part of my career focusing on improving e email performance using techniques like engagement tracking and UTM code to multi-touch attribution and getting some of that in the warehouse and doing like experimentation. But last mm. year I had a guest on the show who, um, like he made me think about whether we've been thinking about email engagement tracking wrong this whole time. And I'd love to get your take on this. Uh, he granted, this is more a bit more B2C lens than, uh -huh. than B2B, but he essentially argues that clicks and purchases or conversions and even like opens are the wrong way to attribute marketing influenced revenue because emails impact way more customers than those who just open and click them. So mm. basically the simple fact of landing in the inbox and giving someone a, Hey, remember us, remember we exist can prompt purchases or, or conversions. And even if they don't open, or click in that email. So maybe they remember it a few days later and they go back on your site or whatever. And I know that many marketers will think this is crazy. Like, how can we just assume someone receiving an email could be attributed to, to a purchase or, or a conversion rate? But if you're running an experiment and you're doing like incremental testing, you could measure that. And that's what my guest kind of did. And he did this across a, a book of businesses for his clients. His example showed that like, although 143 people clicked in the email, only 143, over a thousand people in that experiment ended up buying something in, in that B2C mm. example. So my question to you, Chrissy, as someone who's like been deep on email engagement tracking uh, for your career, we know that deliverability is arguably like what matters most in email, but what if it's actually the only thing that matters? <laughs> yeah. Um, I saw this, I saw a little preview to this one and I was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting um, because I haven't really, I mean, I've like talked about that in a way actually with clients, but I think the tricky part is then them saying, well, okay, well then what should I do with that? So like a good example <laughs> is um, with email or nurtures and stuff, I would push clients to be like, okay, rethink like how you're saying email and really just try and engage people with that email. You don't have to like send them to a form or send them to a download or anything like that. Like your email itself can be something that's educational or mm -hmm. engaging, but you're not going to see like clicks or, or anything like that, you know? And then and then I, then they're like, okay, what about opens? And I'm like, opens are hard to trust. <laughs> so, um, but I like that concept of like your, it, I feel like email is one of those things where it's just kind of like a table stakes channel. Yeah. Like you should be doing it. You should be um, tracking it. And then also just ensure like, like what's your unsubscribe rate? What's your spam reporting for your email and stuff like that? Um, and I think more marketers are hopefully going to start monitoring that as I mean, Google said it's just for, for personal workspaces now, but like the spam for now, rate, for now. Yeah. Um, so, but like starting in February, you need to stick to under a 0.3, um, spam rate complaint. Um, otherwise your emails won't get delivered, uh, to them. So, um, so yeah, so that, that. I think to me just further proves like I think a big focus should be like on the right type of email. I think especially with B2C, usually how people are are getting into the database for them, at least I'm 
I'm sure they're not following the same practices that B2B companies are doing where they're just like getting a ton of people off Zoom info and just <laughs> start emailing and spam them. They're likely, you know, have techniques where you're signing up on their website or, you know, maybe you find out about something, um, you get try and get a free code or something off your website and then maybe you haven't purchased anything, but you're going to receive emails for like, you know, 10 weeks or something. So I'd say that muddies it. So until marketers can really feel confident and say like, hey, the emails are going to are actually the people that should be getting email, then yeah, track those campaigns. Look, maybe have it be at least a campaign touch point for just anyone who received it. The reason why we haven't done that a lot for clients is because they're sending these emails to thousands of people that likely shouldn't be receiving them. <laughs> yeah, love the the call out for Google's changes there. By the time this episode airs, we'll be right in the thick of brands seeing the effects of it and <laughs> how many teams that rely on outbound. Uh, like I don't know. Like I, I think it's gonna sneak up on on a lot of people. Even though like in in our eco chamber, like everyone's talking about these changes, but in the SDR world or in the majority of email marketing worlds, like they don't even have Postmaster set up to even know if they're above the 0.3. Like, so mm -hmm. yeah, like maybe super quickly, uh, last question before our, our last question. Um, what other channels like should teams that rely on outbound, like maybe someone's listening to this right now. That's just like, yeah, like our reputation or our deliverability has dropped right now. Like we're in February, like things aren't <laughs> like doing good for us on email. What other channels should should those teams that rely on outbound be focusing on? And and why do you think it's time to rethink the the role of the SDR? Yeah. Um, and actually, we have a podcast coming out. Did it launch yet? I don't know. But it's actually about the rethinking the SDR, which maybe you saw the preview I gave. Yeah, on. yeah. That's what um, spurred the question. <laughs> okay, okay, good, good. Because I'm like, whoa, did that launch yet? Um, <laughs> so I've actually posted about this like um, a year ago or maybe over a year ago. And I just started to think about like prospecting and outbound. And we have conversations about this all the time as a team, because I love my team is more focused on building the, you know, operations. And, but I always have this constant thinking about business strategy, marketing strategies, because that's what we're supporting, you know? And so we have conversations around, okay, put yourself in, in the prospects shoes. How many times have you actually bought some tech or, or even been interested in the cold email that you've received. And, <laughs> and also, do you even answer your phone? No, for most people, <laughs> some people said, okay, a call and an email paired together. Sometimes you're a bit even more likely to look at the email just because there was a call that happened. But for the most part, it was like anything cold and unwarranted, like just is not good. Very rare. But then there are some cases where something's really targeted they, it's almost like it, it hit it hit on like a perfect use case for you. Like the messaging was great. It could work. It, it definitely could work. It's not dead. But I think the way that buyers, um, you know, do their, so, so much of the buying journey is anonymous now. Yeah. Like yeah. so much of it. It's why it makes marketers jobs, like makes them go crazy. Cause they're like, <laughs> I'm being told to tell our C-suite, all the things that are, you know, moving the needle, but like so much of that happens even before we can track that person. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then all the traditional ways of doing outbound 
are just like not working. People are numb to it. Oh my gosh, I get 30 spam emails every single day. I'm not looking at a single one because at this point I'm just pissed off and just not doing it. And the same thing with LinkedIn. I used to get an occasional LinkedIn in-mail and I'm like, oh, that's a good one. Now it's just like, (laughs) I hate my (laughs) in-mail. I'm surprised I even got yours to be honest, because (laughs) you're just swimming amongst like all these like messages that are terrible. Right. So, but what I think is like for the SDR is like, okay, how can we get them and we're putting these junior people into a role that is hard. How do, so we're, hard. To get, we're telling them to go try and penetrate like an account and try and get them interested in spending like six figures <laughs> <laughs> on something that just makes, it makes sense. <laughs> and so I think when you think of them almost as like marketers or extension of marketing, can they do the research on the account? Can they actually go and find the right data is hard, like especially on people, it, it goes stale so quickly. And a lot of the time, those tools like Zoom Info and stuff, like they they're not they're not like solid gold. Like they're not going to be a hundred percent updated and correct. Like I still get people reaching out to me that I like I work at Chili Piper, and I'm like, no, I'm an advisor there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or the same thing. Oh, you uh, like for a while, like even the first five years of CSU. Oh, you're at a guard, and I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not. I run my own agency. Um, so if I think identifying a buying team at account makes sense. Looking at um, account details, like what are some compelling events, um, being in communities and actually engaging mm. with prospects there, even doing like little social things. Like, like I'm not savvy. Like I'm not on TikTok or anything like that. The most social media I use is LinkedIn. But like young folks entering the work world that are usually put in these jobs like oh hey go email and call people those are the two things they don't even do <laughs> like literally in their lives they in they dm people like on on linkedin or sorry instagram or tiktok or something with their friends they're making like videos that are funny and posting them out there and or they're on like little communities or something i'm sure I, so get them to do more of that. And that's actually some of the things that are better at engaging prospects. And so I think, and then you're going to do more high touch marketing, which is the best way to penetrate an account. And the AE can be part of that. Marketing can be part of that to provide them with the resources and training on how to do that. And you'll look like more of, and you'll get that brand recognition too, brand awareness, because you know, you have people that are, it's kind of like, I think I talked about it before, but you know, like Red Bull, like used to send these like young people to say like, um, I don't know if you've ever worked in retail, but I worked at the mall when I was young mm-hmm. and they would come in, and it would be a late shift and they would come in and bring people like free Red Bulls. And I don't like Red Bull, but like, I was like, oh, that's so smart. Like, they're just grassroots on the grounds, but they know who would be interested and yeah. what the use case is. They're work, you're about to start a night shift or you just are ending. Mm-hmm. You want to go out with your friends after 10 p.m., like go give them a Red Bull. And so I think the same thing should probably happen. Like get your people like on the ground per se or in these areas, figure out who the right people are to connect to and help facilitate that. Um, and I think that's a better use of their time than just jamming and i think doing calling emailing makes sense but when there's engagement when there's enough engagement not just i think just outbound is and you can use uh, those channels 
you know, LinkedIn could be one of them, but also you could communities and things like that, but just balancing the channels that you're using to try and reach your prospects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think you're that super cool. How you're rethinking that role. I think that it, it's going to change a lot in the coming years with the, the Google changes for sure. Uh, Chrissy, I know we're short on time. I want to ask you one last question. We ask all of our guests this, uh, you're a mother of two, a dog lover, a partner, a CEO, a co-founder, an advisor, also a podcast co-host. You have a lot going on. Clearly, uh, one question we ask all our guests is, how do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you find balance between all the things you're working on while staying happy? This is a good question. <laughs> like, I don't really believe in like work-life balance, you know? I kind of just believe in like really good boundaries um, and like prioritizing, like ruthless prioritization, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, and then also just being honest with yourself. Like, what can you like realistically do? I think the first thing is always to look at like your actual job. Like, because I think sometimes nowadays, like people are getting these pressures to do things. Oh, I need to have a side hustle. I need to... Um, I don't know, be on LinkedIn and and doing all this stuff and yeah. or I need to be doing like more networking. And I think the best networking you can do if you work in house is just do an amazing job in house mm -hmm. because like those people might move on to other companies and in they if they know good talent, they're going to like suggest you to someone or they're going to keep you in their network. And that was the big thing that I focused on early on in my career and I I feel like I reap more of those benefits on those connections than sometimes um even like, you know, LinkedIn or something like that. But, um, but I, so I would say that for me, I just, I just try and focus on what I can do and then what I prioritize. I have this like, um, post-it note that has like my priorities. And so it always says like family first. Um, so I try and focus on that. Um, and for me also just with anything like mother, you know, being a mother, um, business partner or anything is just trying to make sure I carve out times for things that like I enjoy. So even though I have to wake up at like 520 in the morning, I still do it every day because I love like working out before my kids get up and, and that helps me and keeps me sharp, I think. Um, and really when I'm on, I'm on. And I used to have a lot of my work bleed into my evenings. I worked long hours and things like that. But now with a family, I can't do that. So I think you just become like ruthless with your time. And like, how much <laughs> yeah. can I get done in this small amount of time? So I really focus on that. And then I keep my weekends like usually free from work stuff unless I really, really need to. Very cool. Um, Great answer. Yeah. yeah, I feel like kids have that ability to just make you rethink and, and be ruthless with uh, reprioritizing. <laughs> yeah, it's hard at first. Like, I will say becoming a parent was a big shift because if you're a type um, A personality and you like control, it's literally not the <laughs> thing that you can control at all as a child. If you think you can't, then, or even any human beings, like even just running a right. business, human beings are these like very... We're living, breathing, unpredictable things. And so um, being okay, knowing that I think is the the first step. And like, how do you keep on going, even though knowing that things will come up? Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Great advice, Chrissy. This is super fun. Thank you so much for your time. Anything you want to plug the audience before we go? I'll share links to uh, the RGA podcast, the CS2 website, but anything else you want to plug? Um. No, I think that's it. I mean, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I I, I do post a lot more on um, me and Charlie 
both last name Saunders. Um, we post a lot from our LinkedIn profile, so definitely connect with us there. Um, follow CST as well if you want to stay up to date on the podcast and and things. And yeah, and if you ever have a question for our podcast, if you end up becoming a listener, we always take questions at rga at cstmarketing.com. So, but I love being on this podcast and it was amazing. So thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chrissy. This episode was also brought to you by Iterable. Your customers didn't fall in love with a robot. They fell in love with your brand. Your customer data can be more than generic conversation starters. They can be meaningful relationship starters. Iterable makes it easy to turn your data into joyful interactions. As a customer myself, along with companies like Redfin, Calm, and Box, I've seen how Iterable is leading the way as an AI-powered marketing automation platform. While the old guard is still struggling to update their user interfaces from the mid-2000s, Iterable is way ahead of the game with a drag-and-drop journey builders, A-B testing, and AI features. Iterable keeps you ahead of the game with the latest AI features so your customers continue falling in love with your brand over and over. Check them out at iterable.com and tell them we sent you.